0: Let's go. Uh, Father, let's start with a word of prayer today. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We pray that you will continue to be with uh, Supriya and Malia and the rest of the Mitchell family uh, at the time of the homegoing to the Lord of uh, Pastor Steve Mitchell. Pray that you'll bless us all. Um, Help us keep everything in proper perspective, knowing that you are in control of all things. Bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I mentioned Pastor Steve Mitchell. As you know, he passed away a week ago Friday. The Celebration of Life service was yesterday. I would highly recommend that if you really want to understand a lot about Pastor Steve, that you go and watch the Celebration of Life service. It's on the uh, Fellowship Bible Chapel YouTube channel. I think you will find it uh, uplifting and interesting. The most interesting thing was I, I had mentioned that uh, I was impressed that uh, by a number of emails that I got from people in India and messages that he had lived in the slums of Mumbai and I thought that was pretty interesting but then his brother kind of shot that down and said well I don't think it was all that interesting I you should have seen his room at home and uh, which is what I would expect a brother to say but uh, it was, a, it was an interesting. There was a lot of things that I learned about Pastor Steve. And I think we will never know until we get to heaven exactly what the impact a particular life had. I have said for many years that one of the things that I think we will do in heaven, uh, people always seem to be interested in their genealogy here. You know, where did you come from? And I think one of the things we're going to do in heaven is we're going to spend... As much time as it takes, and we'll have unlimited time to do it, tracing back through every individual that had something from the, from the time of Jesus and the apostles and everybody. We're going to find out who everybody was that had something to do with us ultimately becoming a Christian. And I think we will be stunned at the number of miracles along the way uh, that uh, resulted in us eventually being able to come to faith in Jesus Christ which is really the most important thing. But we talk each week, and today I'm titling this. uh, uh, I've I've played around with the title. I always try to be something a little bit clever. Um, What were you expecting? I mean, what what did you expect the end, or subtitle is, what did you think the end times were going to look like? Because, as you know, it is, it seems like every week there's, about three, four, five curveballs, knuckleballs thrown with things that we didn't expect. I did an interview, you might find it on uh, Facebook, uh, Dr. Mike Spaulding. Uh, I went up uh, Monday night to Lyme and we did it. I don't know if the audio was that good. I'm going to try to redo the audio, but I just had other things to take care of this week and didn't get that done. But we we were talking, and one of the things we talked about was, so we have all these people like myself and others that do these prophecy updates. Now, we're not prophets. We talk about things that are going on in the world relative to a biblical worldview, the Bible, apologetics, and prophecy, and how things appear that they're going to work out. And I have to tell you though that I don't think, and I said this to Dr. Mike, I, I'm pretty sure that nobody called 2020 correctly. We have to be honest about that. It started off uh, fairly conventionally. There were some rumors of a virus outbreak in China, I believe. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at what I was talking about on the first Sunday in January this year. but. Things didn't seem to be all that out of the ordinary. Then, as we moved into January, we started hearing more about this virus and a massive lockdown in Wuhan, China. A lot of speculation as to was the, whether the virus was man-made or it came from a a wet market. I'm I'm more convinced as time goes on that it's some sort of a, a bioweapon. <coughs> I'm not sure uh, exactly how all that works. But I'm also concerned that there might be more coming. Um, so there's, and that has led to theories and speculations on all sides of this. And is there, a va- it, is there a vaccine? What is the vaccine? How will the vaccine be made? Will it be mandatory? Will it not be mandatory? Uh, what's, what's it going to do? What's it going to be made of? And as I've researched it uh, fairly extensively, my conclusion is I'm still sort of in a wait-and-see mode on exactly how this vaccine is going to be made or if it's even going to be available. For example, there were a number of news articles this week about the fact that even if they come up with a vaccine, it's going to be very, very difficult to roll it out to the public because it has to be uh, specially refrigerated, at least the major candidates for the vaccine. And how do you do that logistically? Uh, It's not an easy thing to do because the way the vaccine, at least some of the early candidates for it are being made, require a special kind of refrigeration that uh, just conventional refrigerated trucks, I do not think are equipped to handle that. So how do you distribute it? How do you get it out? Where do you go to get it? All these things, I just think it's not going to be as easy. But it's just one of the many things that we talk about week to week here about everything that seems to be converging. Um, But clearly, as Dr. Mike and I talked the other night in Lima, I don't, nobody really called everything in 2020. Uh, We knew there were inklings of a plan that was going to be coming out from the Trump administration that was finally released at the end of January. And my personal view is, look, I don't know if it's directly related or not, but ever since that thing came out, it seems like all hell is really uh, broken loose. And we live, again, in a disrupted world. Again, I will remind you that we put these updates up also at the Truth Network, uh, RTNTV.org. You can go to the Google or Apple app stores for your iPhone or iPad, and download a Remnant Truth Network app if you choose to do so. We're going to be doing, I think, a live um, little teaching and Q&A. Um, a few of us this week. Uh, I'm not sure who all participating right now. Uh, it's it's uh, six days away, so I'm I'm not sure that it's on my radar yet because it seems pretty far in the future. And who knows what who knows what's going to happen in the meantime. But as we sort of hurdle towards this end period, in the end times, there's a lot of verses that I could cite. I could cite the verses out of Matthew and Luke about the fact that it, in the last days, perilous times will come. And people will be distressed. Uh, this passage that I used quite a bit out of Second Timothy chapter 3 describes what people will be like. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So when you see perilous times, I guess the question is, what were you expecting? We're, we're warned over and over that that's what it's going to be like. Uh, I was looking back. I meant to do this, and I apologize. I completely forgot what the press of things that have been going on here in the last couple of months, um, especially over the last month, four weeks, it was four weeks ago yesterday, Pastor Steve called me up and said, hey, could you cover for me tomorrow? And I it was the last conversation we ever had. Um, I didn't expect that. I didn't see that one coming. But I also said that I would, I think I promised at some point this year, I would go back and look at what my dad talked about at the Grace Brother National Conference in August 1970 in Long Beach, California. And I was looking at it a little bit today, but essentially he said this, listen, in 1970 he said, you know, they're talking about we're 14 years away from what George Orwell would be this uh, sort of utopian society, controlling society in 1984. Well, it's taken a little bit longer than that, but 50 years after 1970, I think we can see that we're moving more and more towards that. So as Paul said, this know also in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, thankful, unholy, unthankful, unholy, Without natural affection, truce breakers false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And then more directly to people in the, the church in Second Timothy chapter 4, Paul said this, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. And we talk about that here periodically. We've talked about this thing called the Enneagram and uh, mysticism and spiritual formation and all these things that are coming under the church under various guises. By the way, it's the spiritual formation thing. Pastor Steve and I worked quite a bit together on that as we sort of formulated our ideas. I even wrote a paper about that. Goodness, it seems like a, um, a decade ago. That was back in late 2012. And he was one of the ones who went through that extensively with me. But it seems that every time we turn around, this like every week there's something that happens or more every, maybe every day. And so Friday, um, President Trump was taken to, uh, was it Friday or Saturday? I don't even remember the days anymore. I think it was Friday. He was taken to Walter Reed, uh, tested positive for COVID, um, has been given some antiviral uh, medications that aren't necessarily yet approved by the uh, FDA, Um, and then there's all kinds of speculation out there about are we getting the truth from the White House, are they lying about things, is he really bad, is he not bad, is he okay, he's coming home today, he's not coming home for seven to ten days, and right in the last 30 days of a push on the presidential campaign, and everything's been thrown into turmoil. You'll see a lot of speculation, what happens if the president is incapacitated or dies? What happens if a presidential candidate dies before the election? What do you do with the ballots? Well, it's too late to change the ballots now. I mean, there's already been, my understanding is, over 2 million people have voted already. I think early voting in Ohio starts Tuesday, I think, the 6th. So, there'll be a lot of people voting and, You know, what do you do if the candidate passes away? It's, we're really in sort of uncharted territory. Uh, That's why I also thought about calling today's update uncharted territory. And so there's all sorts of accusations flying. The White House is lying, they're not lying. Somebody's telling the truth, somebody's not telling the truth. This source says, this anonymous source, and it really uh, is sort of a state of confusion. I think what's been most troubling, and I'd like to think that I would be above this if it was uh, a candidate that I really didn't support, the reaction of some people has just been absolutely shocking. Um, here is, uh, I believe she was a former spokeswoman for Hillary Clinton, Zara Rahim, it's been against my moral identity to tweet this but for the past four years for the past four years but I hope he dies Nadia Bolts Weber is a Lutheran emergent pastor pastrix whatever she calls herself she is a theological mess I'm going to read what she tweeted just because I I would rather people, I don't, wanna, I don't want to talk about, try to mischaracterize her words. So, this day and age, it's easy to get this. Here's a screenshot of her twi- a tweet she did the other day. Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me, because the joy I felt about today's news felt good for a minute, but only in the way that peeing my pants feels warm for a minute. And now it's cold and smells bad and I'm embarrassed. I don't even know why you would say that, especially if you were one who holds yourself out to be a pastor. And she goes out and she does these conferences with people like Jen Hatmaker and Nicole Norderman and other people like this. Uh, This is all very troubling and disgusting. The implications also of of President Trump have implications on Um, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett as the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. Why is that? Well, three Republican senators have now tested positive for the coronavirus, two of whom are on the Judiciary Committee, Mike Lee and Ron Johnson, I think, and I forget the other one. I think he's from North Carolina. Uh, They're all in quarantine now, and they can't go to participate in the hearings, and they can't vote. So the Republicans have 53 to 47 votes but two have announced that they're not going to vote for um, the confirm because they don't think the confirmation vote should be held before the next president is sworn in. Um, Susan Collins and uh, Murkowski from uh, Alaska won't vote. So that takes it down to 51 possible votes in favor assuming no Democrats would would vote for her. And now you have three Republicans that aren't there, so that takes it down to 48. And it all gets very, very dicey as to whether they're going to be able to have a vote or she would get the vote to confirm her. So this is, this is all just, I think it's sort of throwing Washington into... Uh, even more of a state of chaos than it has been for some time. Um, and I'm sure the parties will try to take political advantage of what's going on. While this is going on, we have the situation of these fires in California. And they're just absolutely stunning in their scope. We've spent a lot of time in California over the years with uh, uh, Pam's parents living out there. We've been out there when there's been fires, there's been massive fires, but these are unprecedented. This is the word that you hear all the time, unprecedented. They've never seen fires like this. So up in Napa Valley, which seems to be the epicenter of the fires right now, 17 wineries have been destroyed, some historic ones a very highly rated restaurant and inn was destroyed, were destroyed in the fire and now the fire has burned. um, Totally this year four million acres have been burned in California since mid-August. I believe the biggest, the largest amount burned in any single fire season and we're not even all the way through the fire season, it's still just sort of getting started. Uh, The biggest number ever was um, about 2 million acres, so we're almost at double that. Homes are being destroyed, lives upended. It just seems like you hear this unprecedented term all the time. This is from the front page of this morning's uh, San Francisco Chronicle, State's Crises, California's Crises Converge in Fires. And it just seems like everywhere you turn, there's something like this. Pam mentioned this to me yesterday, I would not seen it. Uh, There was flooding in uh, sort of around the French-Italian border in southeastern France. Um, One mayor described this as the worst flooding in living memory in that area. The news report said a number of villages suffered serious damage around the southern city of Nice. Its mayor described it as the worst flooding in living memory. Winds as high as 112 miles per hour, and areas got as much rain in 12 hours as they usually get in a year. And again, the constant thing of the term is unprecedented. Today is the opening of a new museum in the United Arab Emirates, and I mention it because, of course, with the recent peace or normalization agreement between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, there's been a lot of focus on what's going on in those Emirates. Now, these are about seven separate kingdoms that have kind of joined together, and they elect uh, someone to be sheik or ruler over them. So you have Dubai, you have Abu Dhabi, and we've talked about the fact that they have this, House of All Faiths with a synagogue, a church, and a mosque that they're building in Abu Dhabi. The Pope has been there. He signed this big agreement between the Catholic Church and Islam. And then this is what's opening today. And I can't remember if this is in Dubai or Abu Dhabi. I think it's in uh, Dubai. It's called the Museum of the Future. It was a museum that was designed completely by algorithm. There are no real cross beams in there. It's all designed by artificial intelligence and it's called the Museum of the Future. Here's a little video that they're playing in conjunction with the the opening. Uh, It's a very unique design. I'm not sure what it's supposed to represent. It's seven stories tall and it's all about artificial intelligence, robots, the future. It's being called by some the most uniquely designed building in in the world. I only mention this because of this, uh, what's been done in building Dubai. Uh, These massive buildings, the tallest building in the world. They made these artificial islands, although they're having some trouble with those because it's resulting in people bought these oceanfront homes and these, like Palm Islands, a big thing you can see it from space. Design, you know, uh, land that's built up to look like a, a giant palm frond, and now they they're finding that the uh, they're messing with the ocean, <laughs> and the, and if, so these people have these massive homes and they're living on brackish water. Uh, <laughs> also. The Pope never seems to tire of putting out his points. It's kind of an interesting encyclical. I was just reading a little bit about this before I came in here. It is his encyclical letter, Fratelli Toothfeet, And what it is, is what... um, We need to do what the world needs to do after this pandemic and health crisis. It's the usual socialist nonsense that you would expect from this pope. Uh, It criticizes private property. I was reading through it quickly. It's, you know, it's got like, it's, it's like 95 pages long. It has uh, something like uh, two hundred. Um, excuse me, one second. It has uh, two hundred and eighty-eight footnotes. Now, when I remember doing my research papers, and when I do footnotes and, and legal briefs and that type of thing, I usually cite other sources and give them credit for the thought or work to let the judge or whoever it is know where I got that. In this case the pope most of the pope's footnotes are citations to what other writings he said which is kind of great if you want to really make yourself feel like an authority is just cite yourself he said this what once this health crisis passes our worst response would be to plunge even more deeply into feverish feverish consumerism and new forms of egotistic self-preservation and it's pretty clear who he's Directing some of these comments at some of the various populist and nationalist movements that have risen up during this time. I don't think he has any criticism of the socialist, Marxist movements like Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And regardless of what uh, one candidate for president says, Antifa is not just an idea. We know that Portland has had riots and demonstrations and property destruction for over 100 consecutive nights. Seattle is having more of the same. I saw a video this morning of Antifa protesters trying to uh, burn down a Starbucks in Seattle. Just an idea. The the thing that's amazing to me is the, the outright propaganda that's being engaged in. Now for example on the left side of the ledger they just simply deny that anything is going on or that it's all right-wing people and this is just absolutely false. It's demonstrably false everybody knows it's false. I look every day at the Portland and Seattle newspapers and I, I would be, hon- to be honest with you it's hard to find them talking about what's going on in their own city we have a lack of respect for the rule of law the McCluskey's the couple who uh, pointed guns at people who were trespassing on their property in St. Louis this week the prosecutor in St. Louis who is I don't care if Fox News wouldn't let me say it but she was clearly and the New York Times reported this the Washington Post reported this Fox News itself reported this that these uh, it was uh, Soros funded entities that funded these prosecutorial campaigns so instead of prosecuting people for trespassing which they were clearly done the prosecutor did what they're doing in almost all of these cases in these cities where these left-wing prosecutors have been put into office they dropped the charges and so that'll make it difficult for the McCluskey's when they do go to trial It would, you know, if they could show that the people were actually trespassing because they were convicted of trespassing, it would be a little easier. But now the prosecutor says, well, we're not going to prosecute her. We're going to prosecute Mrs. McCluskey, whose gun wasn't working. We reconstructed the gun to make it working so she could be prosecuted. And there's just this complete collapse in the rule of law. And certainly, I think the Pope is uh, contributing to this. For example, in his encyclical, in addition to this, that statement, he also says this. um, No, no, I'm not seeing it. Well, he just, he clearly, he, he talks about getting rid of the death penalty. He talks essentially I think you could interpret it as getting rid of private property uh, because that's bad. He talks about, I mean, early on in his encyclical, he talks about getting rid of uh, uh, borders. And so the guy is just a complete Marxist. I don't understand why somebody doesn't, well, I do not understand why they don't do anything about it because they're blinded to the truth. So it's, um, it's all very troubling. There's also another article. This is in the Financial Times yesterday on sort of the big picture thing. This is a guy named uh, Alex Karp, chief executive of Palantir, a big data company. And it's one of the, you probably never heard of them. They've been in existence for about 17 years and they finally just went public Uh, When they went public, his shares in the company came out to be worth about a billion dollars. And one of the reasons they came, they went public was so that people who've been working for the company all these years and getting stock could cash out. And what they're engaged in is they're engaged in um, data. They're probably the leading data collection firm in the world. You probably never heard of them. And the guy is kind of interesting. He claims to be um, a Democrat or a um, concerned about democracy and everything. But he, what they're doing is they're working with governments and agents and other entities to get this data to them. And I keep noticing as I look at things, I might want to buy or. Um, Sometimes it seems like I'm only thinking about it, and all of a sudden I get all these ads appearing on my Facebook feed or elsewhere. And I start getting emails about what I was thinking about. Um, now it may be like, for example, I you know, I'm a put, I'm a golfer, so I have trouble putting. That's what seems to go along with being a golfer. And um, although last week I was on the 18th green and somebody called me and it was from England and I had to take the call and my, my buddies were yelling, would you just put your ball? You know, I was way off the green. I was at least 110 feet from the hole, so I just kind of lined it up and hit it and it went in. So I guess that's maybe the, so I don't know. But, but as I think about it, you know, as I go to the store and look at putters, because you always think that's the solution, I get ads for putters and so all of this stuff and so in this um, they ask him some questions about what you would do and here's what the Financial Times editorial says, but what of the threat to civil liberties from supplying governments with such powerful surveillance tools? Mr. Karp claims that Palantir software's built-in audit trails make it hard for governments to abuse its authorities, but there are limits and even Carp admits, quote, you can make a system that tracks what people do with the data, but if the people in charge are violating human rights and no one in the organization cares, that we can't prevent. Now, it says Palantir claims to have walked away from customers that didn't trust to use the technology ethically, though it won't say who they are. So, it's just interesting, I just ran across it as I was reading this week and here he is, he's got this powerful surveillance software and he says well you know we think we have everything in control unless there are bad people that use it then you know we kind of lose control over that. And we know that there are bad people that want to uh, use these things for their own benefit. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about the Middle East Uh, There has been a complete breakdown by any conservative stretch of the imagination in the relationship between the United States and Turkey, between a lot of countries in Turkey. Even Macron has been all over Turkey because of what they're doing and I'll talk a little bit about this, but right now the US has a big uh, air base, insular air base in Turkey. Uh, When that revolution happened four or five years ago, uh, there was, And then after that, Turkey sort of locked down the base on its own, our base, and there's at least a couple, three dozen nuclear um, missiles or bombs or devices there. And so there's been a concern, but it's been going on for five years, four or five years, and nobody's done anything about it. And it's clear that Erdogan has completely gone to this desire, Publicly stated desire now to recreate the Ottoman Empire. I'll show you a little bit about that, and throughout the Middle East, especially, but not just in the Middle East. This is a a uh, website. It's a great website. You can get it at iLiveMap. and it shows you all the different conflicts that are taking place. And again, it's one of these things where I, I don't know that anybody sat down at the beginning of 2020 and said, well I think this will happen. Now I've looked at some forecasts that I saw in some of the um, strategic analysis newsletters that I subscribe to and some were saying that there's going to be a bit of an economic crisis. So the question is, is there a bit of an economic crisis around the world today? Yeah, by far. The numbers I'm seeing are just absolutely shocking. Um, U.S. national debt is up about $7 trillion this year so far. They're talking about another $3 trillion package. And at some point, but but other countries in the world are also, even countries like Singapore, who you think of as being pretty, stable financially their national debt is 200% of their gross domestic product japan is over 200% other countries are the same way china has a massive debt problem and i saw an article in the wall street journal i don't even i didn't even have time to put it in talking about the demographics are not working well for the united states and they're going to get worse because of the health crisis because whether you think this is real or not people are not going to have kids like they had and with less kids there's less people to pay taxes with less taxes and revenue there are people that are on pensions and retirement and that sort of thing that need to be funded by young workers and we're already having a lack of young workers. Now the U.S. has usually been able to make it up because we allow a lot of immigration legal immigration but now who's immigrating from where to where? much. Israel's on complete lockdown and I'm seeing reports coming out of Israel that the lockdown that they say maybe a month could actually last, last anywhere from six months to a year and it's pretty, I've got friends that live there. You know, you can maybe go 500 meters from your house, unless you have some kind of special pass. You can go to the store and come back, and that's it. All the Jewish feast days this year were pretty much celebrated in uh, solo. So the point that I'm trying to make, I think, and what Dr. Mike and I talked a little bit about the other night was, you know, we, we, we've we been talking about end times Bible prophecy in the church. It really started with Hal Lindsey's book 50 years ago, Like Late Great Planet Earth. And everybody's kind of got their ideas about how everything's going to work out in the end times. And my the question I ask myself is, how's your scenario working out? Because things have changed, and I'll talk a little bit about that more than a bit. So here we see all these places, and now we have one in all these places are hotspots for conflicts. The Eastern Mediterranean, Libya, uh, Syria is going on now close to 10 years. You have Azerbaijan, Ar- Armenia, which has come up in the last 10 days to two weeks. Uh, Greece and Turkey are at it in the Aegean. Um, And all of these things, I think, do play into Bible prophecy. Iraq is in, we're talking about leaving our embassy in Baghdad. The most largest, most expensive embassy ever built, and their reports, the United States will leave completely. Withdraw everybody from the embassy. I mean, this thing costs billions and billions of dollars to build. It's the largest in the world, and we're just going to walk away from it because of what's going on in Iraq and so there's turmoil everywhere we'll see a little bit more about that so Erdogan the president of Turkey opened their parliament this week with a speech and he had a number of things that he talked about but one of these was this and I'll read to you sort of a summary of his of his uh, speech Erdogan said this, Jerusalem is our city. We accept it and honor on behalf of our country and our nation to express the rights of the oppressed Palestinian people on every platform. In his speech at the legislative year opening, Turkey and another and, and other crisis in the nation, sensitivity followed, I'm sorry, This I'm reading from the Thank translation, it's not good. Here's what he said. First of all, the current physical appearance of the old city, which is the heart of Jerusalem, was built by Suleiman the Magnificent with its walls bizarre and its many buildings. So when you go to Israel, you stand on the Mount of Olives, you look at the old city, the walls of the old city were in large part built by Suleiman the Magnificent in the early 1500s, around the time that they were building St. Peter's in Rome, to give you some perspective. Uh, our ancestors honored this city for centuries and showed, its res- and showed it respect. In, that ci- in this city that we had to leave in tears, it is still possible to come across the traces of the Ottoman resistance. In other words, Jerusalem is our city, a city from us. In addition, this city is home to the holy places of Christianity and Judaism. The fact that the lands of the Palestinian people who are the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the region for thousands of years have been occupied and their rights and laws have been violated requires us to pay close attention to this issue. We consider it an honor on behalf of our country and nation to express the rights of the oppressed Palestinian people with whom we have lived for centuries on every platform. With this understanding we will follow both the Palestinian clause which is the bleeding wound of the global conscience and the Jerusalem case to the end and that was his speech to Parliament that and every time he talks down when he gives a big speech when he did the high uh, Sophia when they took that over and turned it from a museum into a mosque uh, really at, for much of its history one of the most important churches in Christendom without getting into all the theology in his speech he also talked about the Eastern Mediterranean issue We expect all countries to respect our security and peace efforts in the Mediterranean. So what you need to understand with Erdogan is if he's speaking, he's not telling you the truth. He's making it up. It's all propaganda. And he's doing this. The Turkey's in a big mess financially. So Erdogan is sort of focusing people's attentions elsewhere with big, with projects of, uh, I was going to say dam projects, they are dam projects, they're projects to build dams. And other things, big mosques that are being built all over the world to further the Turkish influence. They want to be one of the most powerful nations in the world. Uh, This is from his Twitter account. He has an English version that you can follow, as well as the Turkish language. Turkey's Eastern Mediterranean Policies. And... uh, He's very slick. I mean, great graphics and that sort of thing. Here's a report. I'm just, this is not a, um, I don't have any audio, so I'll kind of narrate through this. Uh, there's a guy from Azerbaijan who puts up these, I'm trying to figure out what program he uses to make these phenomenal maps. And he's talking about, the, this was a video he did about a month ago, about Turkey and the eastern Mediterranean and how and there are gas and oil deposits. You see the black areas in the Mediterranean Sea. And how these are, Turkey wants to get their cut. They want to get their share of that. There's also this talk about this pipeline. So when you look south of Cyprus, and Turkey has occupied the northern part of Cyprus since about 19, around 1970, uh, there's a field here. You'll see it circled in just a second. It's called the Aphrodite gas field. It's not a huge gas field. As gas fields go, it has maybe six to eight trillion cubic feet of gas and I don't know how many million barrels of oil they think that they will get from that. By the way, if you compare that to the gas field in the Black Sea that they discovered, the Aphrodite field is much, much larger. And so Turkey's claiming, well, you know, we have northern Cyprus, although nobody recognizes this. This is the purple area. So we, we really, that's in our territorial waters. And to the right of that, you can see the uh, Leviathan field from Israel and then also the uh, Lebanese field and the Syrian field in the Mediterranean, what everybody's claiming to be, and what most international law recognizes as their territorial waters. But Turkey's been trying to extend their territorial waters from the north there as far south as they can. They want to control the eastern Mediterranean. Um, so what they've done is of course the what they claim around Cyprus is now butting into what's uh, many believe are the territorial waters of Greece and the Aegean Sea and you can see because of where Turkey is and because Greece controls all those islands Greece really controls the Aegean Sea but Turkey keeps claiming more and more of the Mediterranean they've entered into this agreement with Libya where uh, you'll see that corridor that is there. And part of the reason for that corridor is they want to control the flow of gas from the fields of Egypt and Israel to Europe. Now, there are proposals that Israel's is going to build a massive gas pipeline from their field, which you see off the coast of Israel, all the way to Cyprus and then to Greece. Turkey wants that gas to transit across Turkey so they can get their cut from the tax of the transit taxes but um, and so when we talk about this and how it relates to the Bible prophecy there's a lot of speculation that this this gas in, um, fields that are off the coast of Israel will be somehow the hook in the jaw that brings Russia and Turkey and others down in to attack Israel. The problem with that right now is this, you can see the yellow gas pipeline that's proposed. It's not really getting off the ground. It's going to take five to six years to build. It's the longest and deepest gas pipeline in the world. So it's an engineering It requires a lot of very technical engineering and sophisticated construction. And right now the price of gas, natural gas, is way down so it's not economically viable. So I just don't see Israel starting this, although before I speak too quickly, you know, at the beginning of the year everybody thought this pipeline was going to get started, it was going to be built this year, they even moved in a big platform to construct it, but then the price, guess what happened to the price of oil? Price of oil went down, price of gas went down, our fracking industry, which is very sensitive to the price of oil, essentially shut down in the United States and we went almost overnight from the largest oil producer in the world to, uh, you know, we had to buy our gas from abroad because most of our oil and gas was coming from fracking. So this is just... It's a very fascinating thing to see how this is going to play out, but I do think it plays into Bible prophecy, but mainly from the, conf- from the standpoint that everybody's fighting over this. Israel and some other countries have formed an eastern Mediterranean group. They've excluded Turkey. Turkey doesn't like that. Turkey keeps sending its exploring ship around, and there's they've come close to conflict with Greece and the Aegean Sea because Turkey claims, of course, a lot of those islands are really Turkey's islands. So it's a real mess. And at the same time, Erdogan in his speech the other day, another speech they gave the guy. I don't know how many speeches he gives every day. It's quite stunning. Uh, the existing terror hotbeds in Syria will either be cleaned as it has been promised to us, or we will go and do so ourselves. So he's always threatening war. He has taken mercenaries from the areas he controls in Sy- in Syria. He's taken fighters and sent them to Libya, and now he sent at least several thousand of them to Azerbaijan to support Azerbaijan, a Muslim country, in its fight over disputed territory with Armenia. And we know what Turkey did to the Armenians back in the later days of the Ottoman Empire. There were, by many estimates, a couple million Arme- Armenians that were, uh, it was just genocide that Turkey engaged in and so today we have this conflict between our Azerbaijan which is backed a lot heavily by Turkey somewhat by Iran over this area called Nagorno-Karabakh and this area it's in the what they call the Lesser Caucasus Mountains along the border of Georgia and Russia there's a mountain range called the Caucasus Mountains it's, it's a massive mountain range. It makes the Rocky Mountains of the United States look tiny by comparison. Because you can see that it's almost butts up against the ocean, but these mountains are many of them are over 18,000 feet above sea level. And so in the Lesser Caucasus down here, there's an enclave that is largely Armenian ethnic, but it's sort of within the border region of Azerbaijan. And so it's been an area of dispute. And now all of a sudden this thing has heated up and there's drones and that type of thing going on. In fact, look at this. This is some uh, video. Uh, Azerbaijan has purchased Turkish and uh, Israeli drones. Some of them are what they call kamikaze drones. And they've been taking out Armenian convoys and artillery positions with uh, with these drones. Erdogan saying Armenia is the biggest threat to peace in the region and they want to protect their the, this area of the world is very tribal they want to protect the Armenians but the fear is that there's always this fear is what's how is this how are these wars going to start we know there's a number of wars prophesied in the end time and the question is what's the trigger And we don't really know what the trigger is and so the question is is this a trigger because A lot of the major players that might end up in war in the end times are involved in this particular theater, at least in the periphery. I mentioned last week an extensive report from the Institute for the Study of War that talked about Russian hybrid warfare. And I was reading some other papers from uh, the Institute for the Study of War, understandingwar.org, and one of the papers said, listen, the United States is really not prepared to fight a war like China and Russia are going to fight because one of the key components, if not the the most important thing in the way they're going to fight the war, is they're going to control the narrative. It's going to be a lot of disinformation, and the United States is we you know we're very much okay you know how do we take care of their missiles, how do we take care of their ships and that type of thing and so think tanks like the Institute for the Study of War recommending the United States really needs to um, think about how it's going to act. Now natural gas does play into this. This is the uh, trans anatolia pipeline that goes all the way from the Caspian Sea which is the eastern coast of Azerbaijan and around the city of Baku which has a ma- one of the biggest gas and oil reserves in the world and that gas Uh, And oil transits across Turkey. Turkey takes its cut out of the fees, and then on to Europe. And so, part of the war is Turkey wants to make sure they control what happens in Azerbaijan, which is a Muslim country. And Turkey thinks, well, look, we think this should have been was or should have been part of the Ottoman Empire. I'm recreating the Ottoman Empire. Erdogan says, so I'm going to control this area. But a lot of it goes back to energy resources. Again, as I mentioned, that one of the things that Erdogan does, and I, I spend a lot of time talking about Erdogan because if you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, the description of the countries that come against groups, that come against Israel in the last times, the, the majority of those are historically located on the, uh, in the area of modern-day Turkey. And so now here's a dispute that's happening. This is a big political issue in Istanbul right now and may be an issue in the upcoming elections in a couple, three years uh, between Erdogan and whoever uh, figures he can stay out of jail long enough to challenge Erdogan is this Istanbul Canal. And it's uh, about 28 miles long goes from the Black Sea, it's to the east of the Bosporus, on the European side of the Bosporus. And part of it is to help control, give additional place for traffic. It will be pretty much, it's it's pretty much, I don't think they'll need any locks or anything, it'll be pretty much a sea level canal. they will cost billions to build and the mayor of Istanbul, who seems to be the most um, viable candidate to a challenge Erdogan doesn't like this canal. And he says, why do you want to pay fees to go through the canal when you can go through the Bosporus for, for free? But the Bosporus has a tendency to get jammed up with traffic. So the point I'm trying to make is everywhere you look, there are these hot spots. There are these areas of conflict. There are these things that are going to lead, could lead to war. Russia is very interested in the Black Sea because that's how. You know, its ships and its port on the Crimean Peninsula that it took over from Ukraine, that's how they get to the Mediterranean and out into the ocean. That's the only place where they have a year-round access to the oceans. Erdogan gave a speech, uh, not Erdogan, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu gave a speech to the UN this week in which he talked about the what's going on with Hezbollah and Beirut. Before I do that, though, there's been a lot of there's a lot of good articles. One at Geopolitical Futures about the new Middle East alliance that the Trump administration has been trying to form. And again, I think this does play into Bible prophecy. I don't think this is the covenant of Daniel nine twenty seven. We just have to. It's something we need to watch because. But what you see is Israel's really concerned about peace and they're making peace with people that have for a long time really wanted to wipe them out and the question is is it really a solid peace or not I'm going to play about a five minute clip of an interview on Israel Channel 7 with the former head of the Mossad he was head of the Mossad for many years and I think he makes some interesting things Uh, Israel Channel 7 the people that run it by the way are Christians uh, so they do have a Christian orientation uh, and they do they do some good work. So they have this couple shows a week called Jerusalem Studio, where they talk about issues in Israel and the Middle East. So here's a, a little bit of an interview with the former head of the
1: Mossad. As we are now uh, speaking um, at the end of the uh, second decade of this uh, century, is Israel is in a better position um, security-wise than it was? Uh, what are the trends, if you look ahead? Well, let's say a word about uh, what has changed. Uh, when we became independent, <clears throat> we had a ring of enemies around us. Today, we have two peace agreements which have taken, pl- uh, taken place, which were, by the way, uh, uh, sought for many years by Israel, in which Mossad played a key role role in the contacts that were established, and the methods of the contacts were established, and the final uh, game of bringing a peace treaty. So the South is secure, the East is secure, the North is not secure. Secondly, we have a whole new uh, set of uh, players in the region were coming to the fore and who preferred to stay in the background for a very long time. This is the second circle which is surrounding us, which are the Gulf states and uh, other countries uh, in which there are Muslim majorities of one kind or another. But one should add that during Ben-Gurion's time and uh, a bit later, he saw this outer ring as perhaps an opportunity for Israel to get away from the encirclement by the core confrontation states. That's true. That is why he went and uh, was very, very uh, uh, anxious to establish a link with Turkey, to establish a link with Iran, and also to establish a a link in Africa. But uh, this did not, uh, in my view, uh, did not uh, produce a game changer. Which was uh, of the kind of a peace treaty. But now we have uh, other players who are coming to the fore, who have developed themselves uh, over the years in a manner which uh, brings them into the international arena as very.
0: What I'm going to do is I'm going to recommend you go to Israel Channel 7 on YouTube and listen to the interview because I think there's too much bass in the audio to understand. But let me explain what he was talking about. Ben Gurion, when he <laughs> Uh, in the early days of Israel, he said, we need to get, we have the the inner ring of countries that are against us. You know, Egypt, Jordan, that sort of thing. So we, we need to go to the outer ring, Turkey, Iran, uh, and some of those other countries, because, you know, these other countries, if, if we're friendly with these guys, the countries in the inner ring won't necessarily attack us. And as the uh, former head of the Mossad says, that that didn't really work out that way but now we're sort of getting this this ring put together we don't have Turkey and Iran but we're getting the ring of the Gulf states which is kind of unusual and he thinks it's it's kind of a big deal and he talks about the history of how he went to Oman many years ago Oman was barely surviving because they had no water what water they had was being um, infiltrated by seawater and they were on the verge of the losing the country and they were able through his negotiations with the head of Oman at the time who passed away just recently that he they would give them a desalinization plan so Israel so what what he tells in this interview is that Israel has been doing these things behind the scenes for a long time now we're just making them public and he's concerned that a lot of them are being made public because that puts a lot of pressure on everybody as to how things are going to, what if something goes wrong in these deals? Now there's a lot of public pressure to do something about it, whereas before when everything was behind the scenes and being done in secret, then it was easier if something went wrong, they could deal with it over time. Now that's all public. And I think what it does is it just makes this whole situation a little bit more volatile. So on the surface, everybody says, oh, there's normalization and peace agreements and that sort of thing. But really what's happening is that it's actually creating more of a public problem for politicians in Israel and elsewhere and for the Gulf state rulers if something doesn't go the right way. At the same time, so there's a lot of this speculation that what's going on is that – that the, the Gulf states, I've, I've seen a number of editorials this way, that the Gulf states may not so much be trying to get good relations with Israel, but they want good relations with the United States, who they view as a big bigger power to protect them against Iran and Turkey, so that they um, they view that going, as this article says in the Jerusalem Post, does the road to Washington go through Jerusalem. So it's it's a very interesting dynamic of what's going on, and again, I think it's something that bears watching in terms of Bible prophecy. Here is uh, Netanyahu at the UN. This is just a few minutes talking about what's going... Well, he didn't go to the UN. It was his virtual speech uh, to the UN. Here's what he had to say. Give me a second here.
2: Okay, here we go. These demands, along with many others, are complete non-starters for any responsible Israeli government. Yet for years, many in the international community have tried to appease these absurd Palestinian demands. And as a result, they've wasted time to try to advance an illusion that won't happen, instead of working for a realistic solution that could happen. Thankfully, President Trump chose a different path to peace, a path anchored in reality. He recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He recognized Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And he put forward a realistic peace plan that recognizes Israel's right, addresses Israel's security needs, and provides the Palestinians with a dignified, realistic path forward if they make peace with Israel. And then he goes on he's going to talk a little bit about Iran
0: and Hezbollah and what they're doing. And you mentioned, if you remember, the Mossad head that The north, so east, south, and west of Israel right now, we pretty much have that situation under control, but not the north. In fact, the head of the uh, Israeli Air Force, who I played a clip of his from three or four years ago at a conference, he said, you know, when we have to deal with what's going on in the northern border with Hezbollah and Lebanon, we're going to do shock and awe, and it's going to be over in about 72 hours. It's not gonna take 36 days like we took back in 2006, although he gave a speech this week at a conference and he sort of sounds like to me he's backing off of that, that it's gonna take a really long time and it's gonna be really difficult to get southern Lebanon under control. The north is a real problem and we know that this plays into Bible prophecy. So here's a little bit about uh, what Netanyahu said to the
2: UN. These demands along with many others are complete non-starters for any responsible Israeli government. Yet for years, many in the international community have tried to appease these absurd Palestinian demands. And as a result... I'm in the wrong slide. They've They've wasted wasted time. Here's the next slide. (laughs) The critics argued that each of these steps by President Trump would kill the chances for peace. Well, they were wrong. Dead wrong. Those steps advance peace. Now, two Arab states have decided to make peace with Israel and more will follow. The expanding circle of peace will not make an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians less likely. It will make peace between Israelis and Palestinians more likely. Palestinian leaders will increasingly realize that they no longer have a veto over peace and progress in our region. And hopefully, those leaders will ultimately decide to make peace with the Jewish state. And when that happens, Israel will be ready, I will be ready, and I'd be willing to negotiate on the basis of the Trump plan to end our conflict with the Palestinians once and for all. The critics argued that each of these steps by President Trump... we We all saw the terrible explosion at Beirut port last month. The explosion happened here. This is the Beirut port. 200 people died. Thousands of people were injured and a quarter of a million people were made homeless. Now here's where the next explosion could take place, right here. This is the Beirut neighborhood of Janah. It's right next to the International Airport. And here, Hezbollah is keeping a secret arms depot. This secret arms depot right here is adjacent, a meter away from a gas company. These are gas canisters, right here. It's uh, a few meters away from a gas station. It's 50 meters away from the gas company. Here are more gas trucks. And it's embedded in civilian housing here, civilian housing here. The Jannah neighborhood residents. this is the actual coordinates. So I want to show you the entrance to Hezbollah's missile factory, because that's what it is. It's right here. This is the gas company, and this is the missile, explosive people. I say to the people of Jannah, You've got to act now. You've got to protest this. Because if this thing explodes, it's another tragedy. I say to the people of Lebanon, Israel means you no harm, but Iran does. Iran and Hezbollah have deliberately put you and your families in grave danger. And what you should make clear is what they have done is unacceptable. You should tell them, tear these depots down. Just a few days ago, One of these depots exploded at in South Lebanon and that is why the international community must insist that Hezbollah stop using Lebanon and Lebanese civilians as human shields.
0: And he's right. So what the interesting response to that was well Hezbollah immediately sent people out to the site like, oh, well, you know, we're not doing anything here. It's just a little uh, workshop. And so, so here's a video that the Israeli Air Force put out, or the IDF put out. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if it's in English or not. So, you know, Netanyahu talks about that. And so immediately they rush out there and say, oh, this doesn't belong to uh, Hezbollah. The owners are here. And this is a guy who's saying this is a senior Hezbollah spe- uh, spokesman. They talk to this guy, do you want do you work for Hezbollah? I'm not a Hezbollah operative, of course we are proud to belong to the area where Hezbollah is operating. <laughs> so it sort of sounds like he admits that what's going on is what's going on and then they go and they start looking about this is the guy who runs the site that Netanyahu referred to and then they start showing okay here are the things that are here in the site there's a laser cutting machine well what would that be used for? And all of these things are used for the manufacturer of missiles. Hydraulic cutting machine, you know, it's not just your usual workshop. This, These are highly specialized tool, tools that are used in the manufacture of missiles. So what happened was, is Netanyahu said something, Hezbollah goes out there, well, no, look, look, this is all we're doing here. And then they're showing everybody exactly what they're doing here, which is exactly what Netanyahu and the IDF said that they were doing. So it's kind of an interesting it, Seth Fransman has a good article on, today's Jerusalem, on the Jerusalem Post website today about how Hezbollah kind of their overreaction kind of showed that well boy they really are doing what uh, Netanyahu said that what they were doing so let me just make a couple more points and then we'll be out of here um, and by the way if this seems a little bit disjointed today uh, we had a lot going on around here this week obviously but uh, it was a, it was a difficult week to sort through everything that was happening and then Friday afternoon President Trump is taken to the hospital with covid and um, for all I know he's still there and we don 't know exactly what's going to happen uh, so it, it it there's a lot of stress in the world believe me talk to people that don't study bible prophecy and they're like what's going on this This world is very, very strange. And here's some other things. So you saw the pictures that I showed earlier about the Lebanese and Israeli uh, uh, maritime rights in the Mediterranean. There's a little bit of a disputed area and the southern border of Lebanon and the northern border of Israel is disputed too since the 2006 war. Uh, The UN has been in there sure what they're doing there but they're they're there getting in everybody's way uh, not really keeping peace getting money and that sort of thing but the so what's happening and this is kind of a big deal is that whatever government now is coming to power in Lebanon uh, which is about the third one this year they want to sit down and have indirect talks with Israel about the borders both in the maritime region and on the land and that's kind of a that's kind of a big deal uh, and the United States is participating in that uh, here's an editorial cartoon from one of the Arab newspapers this morning at the same time that this is going on I think this is kind of what I would call fake stuff these are the Palestinians getting together Fatah and Hamas said, we're going to get together we're going to have elections and they've been doing this off and on for 14 years and usually the reason that they do this they say we're we're reconciling between the different factions of the Palestinians. Um, Hamas, which runs Gaza, and Fatah, which runs the other areas of the what's called the West Bank, Palestinian territory, they're saying, oh, we're going to get together. We're going to have elections and all this. And usually when they're doing this, what you need to look behind it is how much money do they need because they're looking for donations so they can continue to operate what is – by most estimates, a pretty corrupt political system there, um, but it's pretty rough right now. I think I think you know Abu Mazen, who's really who goes by the name Mahmoud Abbas these days. He um, you know he was yesterday. Or if that's right. He man and he's had to kind of park his fifty million dollar jet, I think, because it's he didn't have enough money for jet fuel, and that's a big deal. So that's why he's doing this, acting like we're going to have elections and we're going to get this thing all. Resolved, but I wouldn't put too much into it. Um, but there's a lot of this is from um, an Arabic language newspaper published in London, talking about the Palestinian-Palestinian uh, dialogue. They are approaching reconciliation away from Arab tutelage and care. And what does that mean? What that means is they they're running out of money, and by most estimates, their donations from these Gulf states that are making normalizing their relations with Israel they're not giving money to the Palestinians anymore and the Palestinians have seen about an 85 percent drop in revenue so that's kind of an interesting thing it's a it's very interesting how you know some of the things that the Trump administration and the Israeli government have been doing have really sort of undermined not really sort of they've really undermined the Palestinian people and their authority. And then this is just the last thing is that um, I mentioned this earlier, that even with everything going on in the world, oil prices are now dropping again, which is not good for oil industry. I talked to a client in Houston area this week, and they said, you know, it's, it's a downturn in Houston because of the oil industry and the price of oil. And this has a big impact. So... Just pay attention, um, regardless of your politics. Pray for the president and his wife, and the others that are ill in our government right now. Uh, having a lot of people missing from our government at this time um, is just not a good thing. Um, it's. I would just say and then prepare for the next sixty days to be pretty chaotic on a political, economic, health crisis, whatever scale. Um, I think anything that we've seen before will pale, pale by comparison. It's, the economy is very bad in some areas. I was doing some, talking to some real estate people this week and commercial real estate is really unlike anything anybody's ever seen. Bankers and others, they don't know what to do. They've never seen anything like it. These office buildings are not coming back. They're going to be empty. You drive down around Polaris, every building's got a for rent sign. That's what we saw back in 2008 and 2009. I think this is already a bit worse. So look, we know the Lord will return. Uh, We should be um, very motivated to share the gospel get other people saved because time could be very short things things could change very rapidly not prophesying that they will but all the indications are that they are And you need to take reasonable precautions so let's pray father we thank you for your word Lord we uh, remember Steve Mitchell and uh, the great life that you allowed uh, to be shared with us pray for his family I pray you'll comfort them, Supriya and Malia at this time. I pray you'll watch over us here and keep us focused on the things that we need to do um, as a church. pray for those of us ar- around us in the world and that you will guide us all by your Holy Spirit in what appear to be a, a period of very difficult times that are
2: coming upon us. Bless us this
0: week in Jesus' name. Amen.